Well, good morning. My name is Kevin Barra. I'm the youth pastor here at Grace Bible Church, and we were shuffling around a little bit this morning. Uh, Blake Jennings over at Southwood actually had eye surgery, and, uh, and so Matt's over there filling for him because you need to recover from that. I don't know if you've ever had surgery of any kind, and you don't want to be prepping a sermon, particularly when it's on your eye. You know? so, so he's over there, so I'm thankful to be with you this morning. Uh, but I'm jumping in, continuing your uh, trek through the book of Philippians. So if you have your Bibles with you, Philippians chapter 2, looking at verses 19 through 30, uh, that's where we're going to be. I'm going to read it for us, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to launch in. Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. It says this, But I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. But I thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is your messenger and the minister of my need, because he was longing for you all and distressed because you heard that he was sick. For indeed, he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him, and not only him, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I have sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice and that I may be less concerned about you. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you so much for this morning and for a few moments to just dive into your word and, uh, and to learn from you. And Lord, you, you show us pictures right now of, of men who, who faithfully walked with you and faithfully served one another. And so I pray that this morning that we might get an image of what it looks like to faithfully walk with you and faithfully serve with you, both for your glory and our good. And if you're up for it, I'd ask that you pray for yourself, that your heart would be open and that you would be um, willing to hear what the Spirit would like to speak to you this morning. And if you'd be willing, I'd ask that you pray for me. Um, it's been a long weekend for me. Um, so just pray that my words would make sense and be clear and I'd be energized. Well, Father, we love you. We trust you. Use this time. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this weekend we had um, our youth version of Disciple Now. We're not Baptists, so we don't call it Disciple Now. We call it Cardia. Um, and so we, it was a long weekend for us, and uh, it hit me that I was really in, in the realm with senior guys. When we got to our house, and um, the guys all went into one room, and we're about to do small groups. It's probably 11.30 at night after we'd gone crazy for a while. And, uh, and I roll into that room, and the odor hits me. There's about seven, nah, there's about 10 guys just kind of in this small room, this nice little media room, and the odor was overwhelming. I mean, I had just gone to the restroom and just walked into the room. It wasn't that long. They hadn't lived there for a while. It wasn't like some of your dorm rooms or apartments. It wasn't, it's not that they'd been there for a while. They'd been there like 10 minutes and the smell just hits you. And you know, smells bring back memories. And immediately I was shot back to high school gyms, right? 
So our field house, I don't know what your field house was like, if you ever ventured into there, ladies, if you didn't, well done. Uh, but guys, will you walk into that room and immediately the stench hits you of pads and socks that have never been washed and just sweat and odor and guy, you know, that, that's what it is. And I was immediately shot back to, to that moment and I'm, I'm going, wow, I'm glad I'm well past that. And and then I, I think about another moment um, within the, the field house of my high school. Uh, there were pictures on the walls. And what would happen is that there would be players that succeeded on the field in whatever a sport it was. So it could have been track, could have been football, could have been baseball. But there were players that succeeded in whatever event that they did. And so what the coaches did is as these men played hard, suffered well, they would take their image and put them up around the field house. And typically these were guys who also um, got college scholarships, went on to college athletics. And I was wondering to myself, okay, why would the coaches do this? Why would they take these snapshots of these guys who had gone before us and, and put them along the walls in the field house? And I think the reason is this, because they know a simple truth that you know. We all need images of success to look towards. It's not enough just for me to tell you what to do or for a coach to just tell you what to do. You need to see it played out in picture form. That's the same reason they also put um, records, like the records for the fastest times or, or the trophies from previous years, so that you can see images of success and have a picture to which you can then live and model. It's not just true in, in locker rooms. Uh, I was reading a book on leadership by John Maxwell. And John Maxwell um, is illustrating the point, that this simple point, that we all need pictures of success. He calls it the law of the picture. And he gives a, an illustration, a story about a, a TV series that was made several years ago called Band of Brothers. Fans? Okay, a couple of you guys. And, it, and it, Bands of, Band of Brothers was a movie series uh, written by HBO, and it was about um, these men called Easy Company. They were parachuters during World War II. And what's interesting about the, the process that these men went through is that it starts very bad. Um, they had a bad commanding officer, a bad leader, and easy company were a bunch of lazy guys who never really worked very hard. And it's actually a true story that a man named Stephen Ambrose researched, and he watched this process, and we wa- he traces the line of easy company as they went from this band of kind of miscreants to a band of brothers who fought and were noticed by and decorated for their valor. Stephen Ambrose was asked this question. He's, he said, why is it that these men were able to rise above their peers? And Ambrose responds with this. They weren't all that much better than other paratrooper groups or the Rangers or the Marines. They were one of many elite units in war. But what made them special was their leadership. The great CO's platoon leader and sergeants, not all the elite units had such luck in their leaders. John Maxwell goes on to say this, why did the leadership make such a difference? Because people do what they see. That's the law of the picture. We need leaders to show us the way with the right actions and their followers will copy. And in this moment, in in the book of Philippians, what we have here is what Paul has taken a moment to show us pictures of men who have run the faith well. If you've been tracking with us, Paul talks about his own life. And he says, look, I don't consider my life worthy of myself. He basically says, if I'm not dead, I'm not done. 
So as long as I'm living, I'm serving the gospel. And we say, yeah, Paul, but you're crazy. You know, like I've, I've read your little bio. You've got beat, you've got shipwrecked. Like, yeah, you're cray cray Paul. I understand that you would do that. And then he gives the next illustration of Jesus, right? He says, hey, he was humble and he served even if it meant his death. And, and if we're reading that, we go, yeah, yeah. But that's Jesus, right? You're gonna expect that from Jesus. And then Paul says, yeah, yeah, okay, well, well let me give you two more examples. I'm gonna pull in front of you Timothy and Epaphroditus, two normal men who made a dramatic difference for the purposes of God. And I want you to look at their life as well. And so what I love in this moment, uh, some commentators called this point in the letter uh, mundane, which is very discouraging as you're preparing to give a talk. Like, Matt, why did you give me the mundane passage? Another, another one said, uh, it just doesn't seem to make sense with the flow of the letter, but I think what's happening is that he's going to the Philippians and he's saying, look, I've shown you the rock stars, but let me just show you some normal guys who lived a faithful life and what it looks like. And what I want to do for us this morning is I want to pull out the qualities of these faithful men of God so that you can be instructed and inspired to live a faithful life yourself. And what I love in this moment, I just want you to keep in the back of your mind, is is to look at how these men talk about one another. Look at how these men talk to one another. And look at how they live their life. Verse 19, he starts it off, and he gives you the reason for the writing of the letter. He says, But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. The reason he is, he is writing this, he's like, I'm, I'm hoping Philippians to send Timothy for you. If you're familiar with the overall flow of the letter, basically the Philippians had given Paul a gift. They had given it through Epaphroditus. We're going to look at it here in a little bit. But they had given a gift to him of, to support him as Paul is in prison waiting for whatever's going to happen next. He's waiting for a decision to be made on his life. And as he's sitting there in prison, he's saying, I, I'm thinking about you. And I hope to send Timothy to you shortly. And then what he says next is, so that I may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. The first point that I want you to grab from what's going on in people that live a faithful life is this, that these people assume the best. See, Paul isn't with them. He's not physically present. And so he doesn't know how they're doing. You see, Paul had preached the gospel to Macedonia, and that's where Philippi is. And then he had gone away, continuing on his missionary journey, and he hadn't been yet back yet to visit them. All he has done is receive this package, but what he does is he assumes the best of them. He assumes that they are ones that are going to be faithful in their Christian walk, and they're going to be continually faithful regardless of whether or not he's present. And that's why he tells them a couple passages earlier, hey, regardless of whether I'm with you, you work out your salvation. You live a faithful life. And he says, you know what? I'm assuming that you're going to do that. And this strikes at me because I'm a natural pessimist, right? Um, I assume the worst. I assume it's not going to happen. Why? Because I've been disappointed, right? And you've been disappointed. I think for many of us, we, we can naturally, when we get disappointment and we, people fail us, we can move to pessimism. But Paul doesn't do that. He doesn't assume that they're going to fail. He says, look, when I hear of your circumstance, when Timothy brings that message back to me, you know what I expect? I expect that I'm going to be, over, I'm going to be overjoyed. I'm going to be encouraged. You know environments where people thrive? When there is a realistic, positive environment. When there's a realistic optimism. He says this, I expect when I hear of you, it's only going to be good news. 
Now, one level you would say, okay, well, Paul, are you just being unrealistic? I mean, because people will fail you. Like people will make mistakes. Like, like people can't always be trusted. Is, is, that, is that reasonable? The reason we can have an appropriate optimism is because of this, because we know what we hope in. Here's what Paul says. Is he doesn't say, I hope in you. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you. You see, the, the Philippians were believers. That means that they believed that they were sinners separate from God, completely incapable of coming in right relationship with God. They were separate from God, deserving of death. And, and the, Paul came and preached the message. And they believed. And what happens in the moment of belief is God sends his spirit to live within you. You are now in Christ. You are in the best place you can be. It's the best team you could ever be on. And Paul says, yeah, when you got in Christ, the spirit is within you. And I know that the God who saved you will continue to work in you. And not only that, he'd seen the faithfulness that they had done. The first step is for us to to have an appropriate optimism. To assume the best in those around us. To create environments in which you live where you assume the best of the people around you. Your roommate is probably not as evil as you think they are, right? You walk into that thing and, and you walk into your apartment and clothes are everywhere and, and stuff and, and you assume they're an idiot. What are they doing here? Like I cleaned, they cleaned, and, and you, you assume that they're evil and they want to destroy your apartment. Like that's, that's where you go. But i tell you what, if you want to create an environment of love, and qualities of faithfulness in Christ. You assume the best. You assume that, hey, they had a crazy week or they're really stressed or something bad happened and you approach them that way. The second quality that he lines out is this. He says in verse 20, for I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, but not those in Christ Jesus. Second quality that he lines out is a genuine concern. You see, Paul had other men visiting him, other people visiting him, and he's saying, look, when I think about who I'm going to send to you, Philippians, if I'm looking about who is the kindred spirit, what that means is, like, of, of a, is a oneness of soul. When I think about that person, it's Timothy. When I think about who I want to send to you, who is genuinely concerned about you, it's Timothy. You see, he cares more, Timothy cares more about people than he does production. Um, I'm going to get this name right. Basketball coach Mike Shaskevsky starts with a K, um, which is very confusing. He says this, making shots counts, but not as much as the people who make them. I was listening to an interview with Mike Shaskevsky um, on, on ESPN, and they were asking him, like, why is it that, that you continue to thrive as a basketball coach? And he didn't say this line for line, but he basically said the same thing. I care for my players. I care for the people that are underneath me. I love them, and when they succeed, I succeed. But I want, I'm more invested in them as individuals, not the overall program. And that's powerful. You want to be a part of an environment that, that lifts people up, that thrives, of a faithful community? You genuinely have concern for one another. I get emails all the time from guys, uh, well-intentioned, well-intentioned guys, that they email me looking for um, a, a place for them to play worship music. They, it, the email usually comes, I'm a starving Christian artist. Um, I play the guitar, and 
So I'm open to uh, events that you're doing. I'm open to go to retreats. If you want like a D now, like I'm welcome to do that. And so I get emails all the time from these guys and, and they are truly well-intentioned. And what they don't realize is what they're really saying is, um, I'm looking for a stage. I'm looking for a spotlight. And I'm looking for you to provide a spotlight stage to which I can showcase my talents. And they're not being evil. They're not being jerks about it. But that's what's happening. I got another email this past week from a college student. And I thought this was profound. He says, hi, Kevin. I'm a college student at Texas A&M. And I've been desiring to serve the body of Christ at Grace Bible for some time. And I was wondering if you have anything you'd need done that a a young college guy can do. I really mean anything. If you have a toilet that needs to be cleaned, or a certain student who needs a buddy, or a guitar singer for worship time, I'm willing to do anything that can serve you and or the body of Christ at Grace Bible Church. And listen to this. Also, if you don't really have anything, could you send me in the direction of someone who does? You know how many emails I've gotten like this in my time here? Not. I want to meet with this guy. Because what he says is, and he goes on to say this, my heart behind serving first is this. Jesus told us to. I love that. And secondly, I love people and I love to help people. See, when Paul is thinking about who he's going to send to the Philippians, he's saying, who, who has a heart like mine? Who has a heart to serve these people? Who has, who has a genuine love and concern for their well-being, for their welfare? I'm sending Tim. You see, part of the, quali- the next quality, that second quality is, do you genuinely can have concern for those people that you want to be in front of? Do you love them? The third quality that he lines out is that he is, that you are going to be tested. Verse 22, but you know of his proven worth that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things are going with me. You see, Paul and Timothy met on Paul's second missionary journey. As he was traveling from uh, Derby to Lystra, he picks up a guy, a young man named Timothy, and everyone around Timothy were saying, this is a faithful, good man. And when Paul picked him up to take him with him, you can read this in Acts chapter 16, the first thing that Paul does before he launches into the mission field is he has him circumcised. If step one, for you to say, hey, do you want to volunteer at Grace Bible Church? That's awesome. Here's what we're going to do. Um, you, you would say, okay, that's a level of commitment I wasn't ready for. <laughs> I didn't know that was one of the steps. So I, it would be very odd, but, but Timothy said, okay, if that's what it's going to take, that's what I'm going to do. You see, and, and honestly, if you really want to serve Jesus, you will be tested. You will, you will need to be proven. See, what happens in every one of our lives is, is, is a lot of times we, we want to do great things for Jesus, and once it gets a little bit tough, we tend to bail. You see, Paul was shipwrecked, and Timothy was there with him. Paul was beaten, and Timothy watched it happen. Paul went to very, very hard places, and Timothy, like a faithful son serving his father, was right there beside him. It's a beautiful picture. It's proven character. And if you want to do something great for the cause of Christ, you know what you do? You, you, you prove it. 
You're faithful with the little things and then wait for God to give you the big things. Next quality that lines out, and this is the one I'm, you, you just see the heart behind him, and it's in verses 23 and 24, as well as 26 through 28, he says this, Therefore I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things are going with me, and I trust in the Lord that I myself will be coming shortly. But I thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus. Now listen to what it says about Epaphroditus, verse 26. He was longing for you. For you, all, for you all with distress, because he heard that, because you heard that he was sick. For indeed, he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him, and not only him, but me also, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Do, do you see the, the weight in which Paul is talking about these relationships? See, the Philippians heard, the Philippians gave Epaphroditus the package, the gifts in which to take to Paul to, to serve him while he was in prison. And during the process, we don't know what exactly happened, but it was apparently very treacherous. And along the journey, Epaphroditus got sick, and it says here, even to the point of death. I mean, if you're on the mission for God and you get sick to the point of death, what are you focused on? Me, right? Well, the Philippians hear about this. And Epaphroditus is sorrowful because they're concerned about him. He's like, I want to go back to you boys and say, I'm okay, I'm all right, I, I made it all right. He's... But he is so concerned for them. And what Paul says about Epaphroditus is, is like, look, he's going to go back to you and I, it's going to be overjoyed because he has been longing to get back with you. But Paul is longing for them too. In verse 23, he says, I'm going to send Timothy, but I trust that I myself will be coming shortly as well. You see, when you genuinely have a faithful community, these people truly, genuinely long to be near one another when they're separate. I got an email from my uncle this week, and uh, you should have spiritual mentors in your life. And my uncle was, was by far one of the best spiritual mentors I had in my life. During college, I would go up to Colorado Springs, uh, or sorry, Pagosa Springs, Colorado, and I would spend time with my uncle. And I absolutely loved it because he would just open up his entire beautiful, ridiculous house in the mountains. And literally off his back porch is the most beautiful image of a picturesque mountain scene. And you just sit there, drink your little coffee, like, like I'm in vacation. I mean, it's a ridiculous place. And while I was there, the first time I went there, um, my uncle, I wasn't a believer. And my uncle came to me and he started talking to me a little bit about Jesus, but just in a, in a gentle way. And then as I was going home for the summer, he loaded me up with almost every book that he had on Christianity and a whole bunch of tapes. It was back in the day. And, uh, and so on the drive from Colorado back to Texas, I'm listening to all of these tapes of sermons of, of men that are, that are preaching the gospel to me. And I had never really listened to a sermon before in my life. And then when I got home, um, there were so many nights when I just called my uncle like nine o'clock at night. And I was, don't call at nine o'clock at night to people with families, but but I'm calling at 9 o'clock at night, hey, um, I got some questions because I had no real community in which to ask questions. And so I'm asking him all of these questions. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, grow in my faith. And he sits there on the phone for hours after hour, praying for me, concerned for me, answering every question that I had faithfully. And he sends me an email this week and he says, hey, man, it's been a while since you've been back here. When can you make it back? He's like, we miss you here and we long to be near you. You see, he had invested deeply within me. And when you invest deeply in relationships, you know what? You long to be with those people. 
And when it's around a central thing like Christ, they're deeper than anything else. You have relationships back in high school. And show of hands, how many of you hang out with high school friends? Uh Uh-huh, okay. How many of you have never seen your high school friends since you left? Wait three years? I promise you, some of those relationships that were so deep, we played football together, we cheered together, and what's going to happen in about three to five years is those, some of those that were built on some of those soft, not legitimate, strong relationship binding like Christ, they're just going to go away. For me, I've talked with two high, current high school friends, and in college, I wasn't a Christian for a lot of it, and the only relationships I still invest in and talk to are those ones that are Christians. Not because I don't love those other people, I do. But I tell you what, when you long and serve and strive together deeply for the cause of Christ, I tell you what, it draws relationships deeper than anything else. He says, look, the, I was longing to be with them. Fourthly, these men fight for one another. It says of Epaphroditus, but I thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my, verse 25, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier who is your messenger and the minister of my need. You see how many descriptive terms he surrounds this guy with? He's my brother. Okay, yeah. He's my fellow worker. Yeah, he's my soldier, right? He, he kind of escalates it as he's, as he's going along. Um, the youth pastor who had the job here before me was, was, is one of my best friends. I didn't know him before I got a job here. And then he called me one day his foxhole buddy. Why? Because if you do ministry, it's exhausting. And if I was doing junior high at the time, and oh my gosh, like it was intense. And we would plan together and we would serve together and we would strive together. And I tell you what, whenever he, whenever he calls, I'm picking up the phone because that man I strove and fought alongside. There's a movie uh, that Sean Astin made. Um, it wasn't, uh, that one. Um, it was well before actually he was a hobbit. Uh, it was, but it was also after he was a goonie. Um, if you haven't seen that, you, you need to see that. Um, it's a movie called Rudy. And, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with this movie. Um, Rudy is the ultimate picture of a person who is, uh, who perseveres, who runs hard his entire life. Like it's the ultimate persevering picture, but, but there was a moment in the movie that I absolutely love. He makes the team at Notre Dame as a walk-on, as part of basically the tackling dummies. His job is to get beat so that the main guys don't get hurt. And so there comes a, a sequence of, of, uh, of moments in this movie in which, which Rudy is, is trying to be the defense as the offense is running against him, and these guys are twice his size and a lot stronger, and they're just beating the trash out of him as he's trying to tackle the quarterback. And, and, he's, and at one point, he gets knocked out. He's laying flat on his face. And they're like, go check on him. All right, get up. And they just kick him and they kind of keep on going. And so one of the linemen actually starts feeling sorry for him. And instead of going and uh, and the next play, instead of pushing him and tackling him, um, he just kind of kind of dusts him to the side and kind of goes and r- runs the play. And Rudy turns around, runs at this guy who's like 6'6". Um, he's a hobbit, so he's really short. <laughs> and he runs at him and he says, hey, what are you doing? He's talking up to him. He says, he says look, th- when you play Penn State next week, it's not going to be this easy. You got to hit me. And the guy, big old guy's like, Okay. But you see what he was doing? 
He's saying, I'm here to sacrifice my body for the sake of this greater goal. And guess what? For, me, for us to succeed, that means you've got to hit me. You've got to stop me because I'm longing to make you better. And I tell you what, everyone on that team saw that. This is based on a true story. And at the end of, at the, end of the movie, it's his fifth year of college. It's his last opportunity to dress for a game. And you see the starting players of that team bring in their jersey. They walk into the coach's office. The coach said, Rudy, sorry, you're not going to start. You're just, you know, appreciate what you've done, but you're kind of a mess. And the starting players, they come in, they bring their jersey, and they, they lay it on. He says, hey, I, I want Rudy to dress for me. And he walks out, and the next player walks in. Hey, I want Rudy to dress for me. Lays his jersey down and walks out. And each player from that team walks in, lays out their jersey, because they saw one who was willing to sacrifice everything for their greater good. And they said, look, I long to serve that guy. And that's what Epaphroditus was. He was a man that stood beside Paul and said, look, Paul, wherever you're going, whatever you're doing, I'm right here with you. I'm going to carry the sword. I will be Robin. Whatever you're doing, Batman, I'll be here with you. It's a beautiful picture. And he says, look, when when Epaphroditus, I'm going to send you Epaphroditus, and I can't tell you how much he means to me. They fight alongside one another. And the last one is this, and I think it's a little bit misleading, but these men were ordinary. Verse 29 through 30 says, says this, Receive him in the Lord with all joy, and hold men like him in high regard, because he came close to death for the work of Christ risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. Paul sends them, Epaphroditus, with this letter. He's carrying this letter to the Philippians. And he says, yeah, when, you, when that man walks into your room, you hold him in high regard. Why would he need to tell them that? Because we would look over a guy like this. You see, His goal is to serve the Philippians and serve Paul. He's not looking for the limelight. He's not looking for the stage. We're not saying, he's not Apollos, um, as you know. He's not a Ben Stewart. He's just a dude serving some people. You would overlook this guy. He's the letter carrier. He's the postman. And he says, look, you hold this man up because he is ordinary. And i tell you what, who we hold up as, as stars, as superstars, you know what? They're just ordinary men too. Paul was an ordinary guy. You know his background? He was originally Saul of Tarsus, a persecutor of Christians, one who put and murdered, oversaw the murder of Christians. Paul says to himself, I'm the least likely to be called an apostle. Timothy? He has two spiritual mothers in his life, a mother and a grandmother, Lois and Eunice. It says in Acts chapter 16 that uh, his father was a Greek, more than likely not even a Christian. Epaphroditus, his name is derived from the Greek goddess Epaphrodite, the goddess of love. He didn't have a great background. He didn't have solid Christian parents behind him, pushing him and sharing the faith with him. He was a guy that came, believed, and said, hey, this is the direction I'm going, and there's really no support network for him. You see, these are ordinary guys with backgrounds just like you. Just like you. 
They aren't special. They aren't spotlight people. They're just ordinary guys who said, I'm consumed with a great cause, and I'm going to chase that end with all of my passion. I'm going to read you a quote that I, it's always very inspiring to me. Um, It says this, You don't have to know a lot of things in order to make a huge difference for the Lord in the world. But you do need to know a few great things and be willing to die for them. People that make a huge difference in the world are not people who have been mastered by a lot of things, but who have been mastered by a few things that are very, very great. If you want your life to count, you don't have to have a high IQ or high EQ. You don't have to have good looks. You don't have to come from a fine family or a fine school. You just have to know a few basic, simple, glorious, majestic, obvious, unchanging, eternal things and be gripped by them and be willing to die for them. Anyone in this crowd can make a worldwide difference because it isn't you. It's what you're gripped with. You see, these men, what enabled these ordinary men to make an extraordinary difference in this world wasn't that they were that great. It's that the spirit of God who they had put their faith in made them alive and able to serve. You see, they were lost in sin, destined to death like all of us. And they came humbly to the feet of Jesus saying, I believe in you alone for the forgiveness of my sins and I'm humbly receiving whatever you want from me. That's the only step. That's the only piece you need to make a huge difference in this world, to be faithful followers so that when people see the picture, the snapshot of you, they say, that's what I want to be like. See, we all need pictures. We don't just need to hear about what other people have done. Guess what you get to be? The picture for someone else to say, you know what? I want to be like Johnny. I want to be like Julie. I want to be like Andy O'Brien. I want to be like those people that are making a difference in my life for someone else. One of my personal heroes, last story, is D.L. Moody. And I love D.L. Moody because the man was a total mess who God used in an amazing way. In the 1800s, D.L. Moody went out for church membership after he had come to faith, and they said no. They denied him twice, in fact. And so he said, well, I'm going to go somewhere else. And he ventures off into Chicago and he, he goes to a church and he says, hey, can I lead a small group Bible study or Sunday school, whatever? And they're just like, no, we don't have a spot for you. But if you're willing to get your own pupils, you can have a class. So they're basically saying, you get some people here, you can lead them. And so he did that for a little while. And then he went to the shanty bars in downtown Dock area, Chicago. And he w- says that he would lure little kids in with chocolate and candy which is hilarious. Uh, and he would have a Bible study and he asked a guy to visit him and to, uh, and to pray for him as he did this. And this man recounting D.L. Moody doing this ministry walks, walks into the room and it's a mess. Kids are running everywhere, like it's nuts. And D.L. Moody is sitting in the front of the room with a little boy on his lap. And the guy recounting the story says, um, a great many of the words the reader could not pronounce as he tried to read the prodigal son. So D.L. Moody didn't even know a lot of the words in the Bible, but he's doing his best to read. And the whole thing was, was a mess. And, and in between, he would like bust out into song. They would like, let's sing a hymn, and then try to like calm all the kids back down and kind of teach him again. 
And after that kind of event that evening, um, D.L. Moody walks over to this man that he asked to come visit him, and he says, look, I only have one talent. Pray that God gives me more. And he's referring back to the parable of the talents. I said, hey, God gave some ten, some five, some three, and D.L. Moody's like, yeah, yeah, and I've got one, maybe half of one. Um, Pray that God gives me more. I don't know who you are. I don't know where you are, but I'll tell you what. You want to make a huge difference in this world. It's not you. It's the power of God that you surrender to working through you that will make a dramatic difference in this world. And that's my hope for you. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for this morning. And I thank you, Lord, for for men and women of faith that have run the race before us. Men and women that are models to us, they're pictures of faithfulness that we can look to and God model our life after. So Lord, I pray for the students that are in this room, that you give them a passion to serve you, to walk with you, to love you, and God, that they would make a dramatic impact for the cause of Christ by the power of your spirit. I thank you so much for this time. I thank you so much for these students. In your name we pray. Amen.